Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Forum's Mitzav podcast, the podcast that brings you all the latest updates and analysis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm Noah Schusterman, the Communications and Research Fellow. And I'm Adam Bassiano, Coordinator of Strategic Initiatives and Director of IPF Atid, IPF's Young Professional Network, and I'm filling in for Eli Koaz, who is over in Tel Aviv assisting in the Yitzhak Rabin Memorial Rally. This past Monday, the IDF bombed a tunnel that was traveling under the border fence near Khan Yunis. Eight Palestinians, including Hamas and Islamic Jihad militants and commanders, died in the attack. With the Palestinian reconciliation process happening in the background, it is unclear when and how Hamas will retaliate. We are happy to welcome Raith Alamari, a leading expert on Palestinian politics. Raith is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and is the former executive director of the American Task Force on Palestine. He was also a part of past Palestinian negotiating teams. Hi, Raith. Hi, hi. Can you start maybe by telling us a bit of what happened on Monday? Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, thank you for hosting me. Uh, what happened on Monday is that uh, Israel, the IDF, uh, had uh, discovered a tunnel that was dug from Gaza to Israel. Um, the IDF detonated the tunnel on the Israeli side. Uh, as a result, as uh, the introduction mentioned, eight Palestinian militants uh, were killed. They were not directly uh, targeted, at least that's the reporting that we are hearing now. They were not directly targeted. They happened to be there. And uh, since then, uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, have been uh, considering how to react to this uh, event. Um, usually when these sorts of attacks happen by the IDF, um, especially when senior commanders are killed, they often lead to retaliation. Um, do you think we can anticipate such reaction under the current circumstances um, and the reconciliation uh, process, or could that be some sort of curbing mechanism right now for Hamas's reaction? First of all, of course, it's very hard uh, to predict exactly how things developed uh, on the ground, but uh, it seems quite unlikely that this will lead to further escalation. This was intended by Israel primarily, and we've seen this, by the way, in previous uh, instances, primarily as a message of reinforcing and defining the rules of engagement and the rules of the game. The message that it was sending to Islamic Jihad and to Hamas is that there are certain red lines don't think that just because there's reconciliation, you're off the hook. From the Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, side, there's also, it seems at the moment, no desire for escalation. Uh, the conditions that in which the attack happened do uh, not uh, encourage uh, retaliation since uh, it was detonated inside Israel, not inside the Gaza Strip. But also, Hamas is extremely invested in the, in the reconciliation. And what we saw yesterday were joint Hamas Islamic Jihad meetings, but Islamic Jihad is the one that usually um, retaliates. And we saw Hamas actually pressuring Islamic Jihad not to retaliate. In addition, Egypt, which has been shepherding the uh, reconciliation, has also uh, leaned on both uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad not to retaliate. So it seems right now that this will not lead to retaliation. It seems like one of these routine uh, messages that are sent. The problem, of course, is when you send a message uh, using uh, bombing and explosives, explosives, sometimes you get the response in bombing and explosives. So this time it seems it might not escalate, but uh, it 
To shift now, yeah, to the hot topic of today, which is still the Palestinian reconciliation process. Wraith, an interesting moment happened on the panel uh, last week in Los Angeles that you were on with IPF at our Middle East Security Forum, where actually some of our Israeli panelists painted a slightly rosier picture of the reconciliation process than you did. So we're wondering, based on your broad experiences within Palestinian diplomacy and policymaking circles, why should we be both pessimistic but also maybe optimistic about the current reconciliation efforts? Maybe let me start with the uh, pessimism, get that out of the way. Uh, I mean, I would be pessimistic for really two reasons. First of all, you know, there's precedent. Um, This is maybe the fifth or sixth round of uh, Palestinian reconciliation, and they have all failed in the past. And this creates kind of a sense of uh, caution when looking uh, at this. Every previous time, the sides all declared their full commitment only basically to enact uh, during implementation. But more specifically this time, uh, what we see is in, in Palestinian politics, on the one hand, within Hamas itself, there is uh, a tension between those who want to go towards reconciliation and those who don't. Today, until now, those who want to do reconciliation have won the day, but uh, this is an ever-shifting dynamic. On the Palestinian authority side, uh, President Abbas was not all that enthusiastic about joining the reconciliation. He was on a certain path that mainly consisted of pressuring Hamas, and he only uh, got into this process under Egyptian pressure. When you have one of the parties getting into the process under pressure, uh, under some sort of duress, he will be motivated to try to undermine the process. And what we've seen so far are small steps and small indications in this way. For example, uh, just recently, Abbas had tried to bring in Qatar again into the formula in a way that will undermine Egyptian efforts. So what we see is both a history that does not give us much uh, confidence, but also diverging interests. But to go on the optimistic side, there are two sources of optimism. One, the fact that the current Hamas leadership seems interested are Gaza-based leaders who want to improve things in Gaza. So technically they seem interested, uh, and most importantly, Egypt seems very interested. For the first time in many years, we have seen Egypt take a very robust and very proactive uh, role in uh, shepherding this uh, reconciliation. They have not, not, not only convened the parties, but they pressured the parties, presented ideas, presented compromises. And as long as the Egyptians are uh, involved, I would be optimistic. I guess, and I will conclude with this, I guess that uh, optimism or pessimism would depend on what you expect from the deal. If you think of this as real reconciliation, then uh, I'll be very pessimistic because many of the difficult issues like uh, Hamas's weapons and like uh, the political platform are not addressed. Therefore, this is not real reconciliation. If you look at this as a tactical convergence of interest, that could create a window to allow the international community to come and uh, alleviate the... Uh, humanitarian situation in Gaza, then I think there is enough there that we can work with. Mm-hmm. The trick is not to overshoot and not to overextend. So that um, leads me to my next question about what is the motivation behind Hamas's decision to enter this reconciliation process? Because you can say that it has, Hamas has been under immense pressure since the summer of 2014, and I mean, obviously from before, um, but specifically in the past couple of years, uh, Qatar cut back its funding 
Um, there's the feud with Fatah that caused dramatic electricity shortages and withholding salaries from Hamas employees. The Israeli blockade continues, and etc. Can these um, elements explain why Hamas suddenly is willing to cooperate with the PLO? And could it also maybe explain the new Hamas charter from recently that recognizes historically the two-state solution as a formula of national consensus? I mean, first of all, uh, maybe uh, I'm pedantic and say that uh, what we saw, we talked about the new Hamas charter. It's not really the new Hamas charter. It's what they call a political document that was very carefully drafted to make sure that they do not actually write about the two-state solution. They said they're willing to have a Palestinian state on the 67 border, yet are unwilling to recognize Israel. And until you recognize Israel, there will be no two-state solution. But it's an interesting development. But why Hamas is moving in the current direction can be explained on two levels. One is uh, a practical uh, level that you hit the two. And that is the fact that uh, Hamas, as you mentioned, things in Gaza have become becoming more and more dire. Uh, people in Gaza are more and more uh, restless. Uh, we've seen in recent months demonstrations against Hamas, and this is uh, fairly new. This happens to, co- uh, to coincide with a change in the leadership of Hamas. Hamas elected new leaders earlier this year, and the new leaders are all coming from Gaza, which makes them much more sensitive to the needs and pressures and dynamics of Gaza than the old leadership, which was based between Qatar and, uh, and Turkey. Uh, but beyond the uh, sensitivity to the situation in Gaza, the new leadership has also come from a different political orientation. The old leadership saw Hamas as part of the wider Muslim Brotherhood uh, movement and was very uh, attached to the agenda of Qatar and Turkey, which were pushing a Muslim Brotherhood uh, regional agenda. And the new leadership understands that for any progress to happen uh, in Gaza, they have to rebuild the relations with Egypt. So the new leadership is much more willing to engage Egypt and much more sensitive to Egyptian demands. So a combination of a new leadership, a regional reorientation, and the worsening situation in Gaza have pushed Hamas to agree to cooperate. Yet again, this is a tactical cooperation because it does not entail Hamas making any strategic shift, whether on its programs or on its armaments. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that because in a piece we recently published in Matzav blog, um, Shula Riali, which you're obviously familiar with, um, cl- actually claims that the new Hamas leadership realizes that in the long run, its civil responsibilities cur- curb their ability to initiate full force attacks of resistance against Israel. And basically by conceding to the reconciliation process and giving the PLO more administrative roles, um, they will have a stronger tool to mobilize support when eventually the political stagnation um, maintains and Hamas is no longer to blame for it. Um, Would you agree with this sort of analysis that this is basically a new strategy for Hamas to revert back to its more militant days? Um, Absolutely. I think Shaul is absolutely right uh, in this. Traditionally, really since Hamas took over Gaza back in 2007, there have been a debate with Hamas. Some, particularly the Hamas leadership that was uh, uh, in 
the, the diaspora, we're saying that we need to govern. We need to govern. This is the way of creating a foothold uh, for both Hamas and for the wider Muslim Brotherhood. And they had, uh, until recently, uh, carried the day. Uh, throughout this period, though, many voices, particularly in the military of Hamas, have seen governance as a trap, have seen it as something that gives them certain uh, liabilities. And today, if you look at Hamas's leadership today, Yahya Sinwar, Saleh Haruri, those new names, these all come from the military wing who believe that governance is something that constrains their ability to quote-unquote resist. And indeed, uh, just a few months ago, the military wing, in a very uncharacteristic way, floated an idea of relinquishing governance that even before the new leadership uh, came. So what Hamas is trying to do is what we call the Hezbollah model, whereby the Palestinian Authority and the PLO come and assume uh, governance, and governance is a very thankless job, to be responsible for collecting garbage, to be responsible for paying salaries, to be responsible for all of these things. This is a thankless job. It's uh, politically only gets you, get you grief. And in the meantime, Hamas wants to maintain its military wing, where the real power resides, like Hezbollah in Lebanon where the PA, uh, on the face of it, is uh, governing. But in reality, the PA knows that as long as Hamas continues uh, to maintain its weapons, it is unable to make any important uh, decisions. And every time the PA deviates, Hamas will be there with its weapons, with its military wing, to force it to follow Hamas's uh, lead. This is, I think, where the new Hamas leadership wants, and this is what uh, Abbas and Egypt are both, both very aware of and are trying to... Uh, well, bringing up Hezbollah even in a theoretical sense, obviously Israel does not want to see a situation similar to that in southern Lebanon. I'm wondering if you could comment on perhaps the Israeli course of action to prevent um, a situation that would embolden Hamas at the expense of the PLO to the extent of uh, your ana- analysis. Mm-hmm. Israel, I think, uh, not only Israel, also, they see they have uh, conflicting um, uh, interests in this case. On the one hand, there's the interest that you described that I wanted to see from this, but, sorry, Hamas strengthened and emboldened. On the other hand, there is also a very real interest in uh, stabilizing the situation in Gaza, both um, in terms of ensuring that the humanitarian situation doesn't reach a crisis point because that inevitably will spill uh, over into uh, Israel, but also knowing that if there's no stability then uh, the economic situation and the humanitarian situation deteriorates, they know that this is always a prelude to a new war, and no one wants a new war. So what we have seen so far, Israel, along with uh, Egypt, or Israel specifically, has, uh, despite the very strong rhetoric position on uh, the reconciliation, has allowed it to proceed. Uh, so for Israel, I think uh, working with Egypt, they're allowed to proceed, and they understand that if you insist now on uh, disarming Hamas, uh, at this moment, then the uh, reconciliation will fail. So I think for both Israel and for Egypt, uh, the issue of disarming Hamas remains a long-term objective. But for now, for the sake of stability, they're willing to uh, not put this under preconditions. So let's um, say for a sec that the reconciliation process succeeds, and let's be optimistic. 
would that necessarily be good news for two-staters, for people who are pro the two-state solution? Um, or is it possible that actually the presence of Hamas within the Palestinian government would further curb um, the Palestinians' ability to make progress on, um, on the two-state solution? I mean, first of all, I mean, in this kind of question, uh, a lot of uh, the devil is really in the details. Um, what kind of a government we would have? Would the government recognize uh, the three international conditions? Uh, would the government have members of Hamas or would it simply be supported by Hamas? These are all details, but that would actually matter. But in general, I would say, first of all, uh, it's not the Palestinian Authority that negotiates. It's the PLO. And Hamas is not a member of the PLO. The current reconciliation can create enough stability to allow for negotiations to resume. I mean, negotiations cannot succeed if there's an unstable security situation in Gaza. So this could create some stability, some, some stability in Gaza that will allow for the negotiations uh, to proceed. Yet, when we get to the point of decision, Hamas is yet to renounce uh, it or to change its uh, charter. Hamas continues to be against any deal that recognizes uh, Israel. So while technically in the short term this reconciliation might help relaunch negotiations, eventually to reach a peace deal, Hamas will be against any peace deal because any peace deal would require the Palestinian recognition of Israel in the same way that Israel would have to recognize the Palestinian state. So tactically this will help launch negotiations, but unless Hamas changes its uh, stands its platform to accept the two-state solution properly, then what we're doing is simply postponing the conflict with Hamas, not eradicating the conflict with Hamas. Speaking re- regarding stability in Gaza as a prime objective, both for the Palestinians, clearly, but also the Israelis and Egyptians, I'm wondering if there, in your opinion, is a strategic opportunity for Israel to again play a more positive role um, in the past few months, even within the Likud government. We have heard of uh, some broad plans or ideas for enhancing some civil economic measures, whether it's a seaport or um, other uh, development projects. Do you believe there is a positive role to be played in uh, by Israel or with the coordination of Egypt as well for enhancing stability at this moment and in the coming months? Um, absolutely. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, I guess, again, there are two levels uh, to this question. There are certainly concrete things that can be done to bring uh, stability. Many of these things, uh, Israel, not only Israel, to be honest, the international community has been reluctant to do as, uh, as long as Hamas uh, was directly governing uh, Gaza. So if we end up with a unity or a consensus government, this will create the conditions to enable Israel directly, but also to uh, let Israel allow the international community to engage in a much more robust uh, robust rebuilding and reconstruction uh, process in Gaza. This is key. This is key because you know it's, it's important in its own right. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is unconscionable, and it's key because it creates uh, brings stability. But when you look at uh, what kind of project, one has to be quite careful. You do not want to engage in uh, or to support mega projects like a port or an airport that will allow Hamas to claim uh, a degree of. Uh, 
political achievement. You don't want to do something in Gaza that uh, creates a situation, a sense that Gaza is moving forward faster than the, than the West Bank. So while we need to deal with the humanitarian situation, we cannot create, I think, uh, mega projects that would come to the uh, benefit uh, of Hamas. So that's on one hand. There is uh, an opportunity, there is an opening, but I think uh, we can... Uh, international community and Israel uh, can benefit from, but at the same time, at the same time, look, Hamas's fundamental message is the following. Its fundamental message is that diplomacy and coexistence and peaceful uh, means do not pay. And we should use this opportunity to actually start delivering not to Hamas and not only to Gaza, but also to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. We should, uh, at this moment, look at what's happening in the West Bank. Uh, very active security cooperation between the Palestinians and Israelis, uh, security stability, uh, and all of that. And make sure that as we deliver in Gaza, we also deliver to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank to ensure that uh, leaders like Abbas, uh, leaders like the security chiefs, can point out to these things and say that our way also works. So yes, we have now an, an opportunity to uh, do things in Gaza, but I think we should not neglect the West Bank and continue to show that the cooperative approach of the Palestinian Authority is creating and producing development for the Palestinians. I'm glad you bring up the important role of the Palestinian um, public sphere as well as the wider civil society. And I know you mentioned last week after your panel, actually, that many of the really effective Palestinian civil... Many of the effective Palestinian civil society efforts have been very local and happening actually more often than the English or Hebrew media lets out. I'm wondering what your thoughts are, given these um, pretty breaking political developments, what their effects are on the not just Palestinian public, but the civil society efforts that have been ongoing. services to their communities, 
but also aim uh, to create a sense of uh, civic engagement, a sense of public participation, a sense of grassroots empowerment for the Palestinians. And this is very important. It's important both for the health of the Palestinian political system, but it's important because if we are ever to get peace, you would need to have a Palestinian civil society that is active, that can uh, take to the streets, that can uh, generate political support for this. Because you know, if there is going to be peace, there are going to be those who oppose it. Unless we start empowering uh, civil society forces, then when we get to that point, uh, I fear that the naysayers will uh, uh, will be more vocal. So there are these kinds of uh, initiatives, uh, but uh, we have to look deep and to look uh, hard because, as, as you mentioned, many of them you know, don't speak English, don't speak Hebrew, they work on a local level, uh, they work on uh, issues that might not be obvious to us, but unless we support them, I fear that we uh, will end up with a weak Palestinian society that is unable to support the as a graduate of uh, a lot of those programs, I have to agree with you that um, as, an, as, some, as somebody who grew up in Israel and never had an encounter with the Palestinians, um, it's very influential to have the chance to talk one-on-one and, and really feel and see what the other person is going through. Um, and I think both ways, it, it really adds to the conversation and the ability to have empathy and um Start realizing what is the solution for this. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ray. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to go into our website and engage with IPF. (laughs) 